1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the channel. I just spoke with Megan Prelinger about her new book, Inside the Machine. Art and Invention in the Electronic Age. This came out with W.W. Norton and Company in 2015. Now this is a beautiful book that gives us images and text and asks us to read them together and really models what reading a history of technology with and out of graphic representations can do to help us understand a really crucial and really fascinating moment in the graphic arts, um, in modernism and in the emergence Of technologies, uh, electronic technologies specifically, um, but also how that can help us um, see, literally see and understand things that we might otherwise take for granted. So um, it's a really fascinating story that takes us from FM radio to um, vacuum tubes and cathode ray tubes, circuitry of various sorts, all the way into space, um, and really traces that history and brings out a narrative out of a series of images from magazines and journals and kinds of ephemeral sources that in STS we might not otherwise look to been trying to understand this crucial period of the history of electronic technology. So it's a really fascinating story, um, and it was really a pleasure and quite an honor to talk with Megan about this story. You'll hear um, over the course of the conversation, um, not just about the project, but also about the Prelinger Library and and the other projects that she's working on. It's all quite inspiring, Um, and I urge you, um, if you have a chance, uh, to check those out and also, of course, um, to get your hands on a copy of the book. Um, We talk a lot in the course of our conversation about images. Um, Of course, you know, that's uh, much of what the book's about. And so if you have an opportunity to see them for yourself and all their color and vibrancy, um, you'll really be able to experience the conversation in a different way. So thanks very much as ever for listening, for your support, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Megan Preylinger about her new book, Inside the Machine. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Megan, and thanks very, very much both for producing such an interesting and innovative and beautiful book and also for making time today to talk with me about it. Thank you, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Megan, let's start as is kind of traditional for the channel um, by talking a little bit about how you came to this field and specifically What brought you to work in the history of technology and its confluence with the history of art? Um, Well, I, uh, you know, it started, um,
0: sorry, uh, when I was a young person as a science fiction fan, I was uh, kind of implicitly interested in the history of technology without, uh, you know, with it being narrativized in science fiction, I didn't wouldn't have articulated it in that terms, especially as a kid. Mm -hmm. But uh, after I grew up and studied anthropology, I was in uh, college, I was very interested in a kind of how uh, both narrative science fiction and uh, the kind of evidence that I saw around me in the world I was living in um, formed um, patterns in society that Uh, didn't seem to me to be necessarily always uh, well understood, or they were often expressed best in science fiction. And I was curious uh, from an anthropological standpoint of how new technologies were being naturalized in our culture. And I I started just kind of watching that as I was uh, simultaneously doing lots of other things. Um, And then... Again, as a younger adult after college, I decided to be something of a independent scholar because I was interested in a few different fields that didn't always know how to talk to one another, and I wanted to pursue a few simultaneous uh, paths of inquiry. And towards that end, I uh, ended up uh, collecting um, kind of ephemera that wasn't otherwise being collected and with my uh, partner opening an independent research library that's here in San Francisco. And, th- and this book is one outcome of that uh, really multi-year process of uh, collecting historical ephemera that wasn't being collected elsewhere, um, searching that ephemera for patterns of how technology was being represented in the culture and even uh, developing a form of practice that was informed by uh, having been a, a science fiction reader where I uh, decided to try to approach ephemeral literature as if it were a narrative and and to read it and to see what kinds of stories would emerge
1: fabulous and um readers or listeners who will um hopefully become readers will also find a lot of fascinating science fiction related stuff coming up um, in many of the chapters. So I'm sure we'll talk about that at least a little bit in the course of the conversation. So the book that we're talking about today identifies itself as, and in the words of the book, a history of electronics that explains technology through the lens of art. It asks the question, and again, um, this is from the book, what cultural history of electronics can be extrapolated from a close look at the associated graphic art. Okay, so this is not just a really fascinating um, topic, but it's also a really, really interesting approach to sources, right, to kinds of uh, ephemeral um, art sources that you were um, mentioning briefly before. So, Megan, how did you come to focus on this particular um, topic for the book, Electronics, and art in this period, and to this particular way of approaching your sources and reading um, the sort of graphic art sources for a history of technology and to produce a history of electronics and technology. Uh, Well, that
0: idea of reading uh, historical ephemeral literature as if it were a novel, um, goes back in my practice almost ten years, and it and then it led in a number of different directions. And, and when I say ephemeral literature, I'm I'm talking about uh, a secondary source material, um, not unpublished documents, but uh, documents that were published for uh, industry. Uh, Consumption. Um, Magazines like Aero Digest, the Bell Telephone Magazine, Broadcasting Magazine, um, Electrical World, Electronic Age. These are some of the kinds of titles. They're, um, you know, they've really sort of flown under the radar of a lot of uh, recent research because they, you know, for one thing, they're not widely collected in libraries, and for another thing, they don't really speak to the historians. primary focus on primary materials, but at the same time, they do, uh, you know, a, a kind of long-form, um, long-running study of them. Uh, they do reveal all kinds of interesting patterns about the emergence of technology. And and so, uh, you know, one of the things with starting to read these uh, magazines um, that I noticed, first of all, was the kind of the dialogue between uh, text and image on the page. That the advertisements were offering, offering one kind of story about the technology and the uh, straight articles uh, were telling a different, uh, more realistic kind of story. And that there was a creative tension there between, um, sometimes between the utopian promise offered uh, by the artwork and the uh, you know, sometimes uh, practically dystopian news of the various problems associated with technological emergence. And um, uh, so that was one part of the reading was noticing that kind of tension that's on the pages of all those different kinds of publications. And then another kind of reading was to discover that uh, the art being created for the advertisements uh, was actually being made by artists who were working in a mediated way, but uh, with uh, scientists and engineers to uh, directly explain and explore what scientists and engineers were doing in the laboratory. And, uh, you know, the research revealed that, uh, um, you know, a number of artists were put in direct contact with uh, laboratory scientists in order to uh, interpret their work. And so there's a very mediated uh, but nevertheless real uh, version of collaboration going on there between the artist and the uh, engineer or scientist. And I, I just found that relationship to be extremely interesting and, uh, and generative and then to trace it over a number of decades You know, it told a a different version of the story of the history of technology than um, others I'd seen before. You know, working in visual terms, uh, you know, but very uh, compelling.
1: And one of the really interesting things um, that you talk about in the book. Um, again, just kind of staying for a moment more with this issue of sources, um, you talk about the problem of art- artist anonymity, right? So the book is right. very, very careful when it can to to name um, some of the artists who are working in these media um, and to celebrate them and to bring us into their work. And you know, some of them were resident artists at particular labs. Um, we'll talk about an artist who is a resident um, graphic artist at MIT, but names are not always available um, for the particular sources that you're working with so can you talk about that a little bit how did you navigate that as a challenge and and perhaps also as an opportunity for telling the kind of story you were interested in sure yeah um, well it it's part of uh,
0: looking at this relationship between art and technology uh, within a uh, sponsored framework, the framework of uh, corporate sponsorship, that, um, you know, the companies that were sponsoring the artwork, they wanted to claim authorship for that artwork uh, in, in most cases. And a few artists asserted uh, naming rights to attach their names to their work, but not all of them had that much uh, power. It speaks to uh, you know a, a labor history of art for industry, uh, which I was very interested in, and tried to trace some of the dynamics of um, you know how uh, artists and, and scientists were placed together in a working uh, relationship that was uh, structured by the sponsor corporations and um, and then but a number of artists did were able to attach their names to work, and I was able to find them, meet them, speak with them, and hear them talk about uh, their experiences uh, fighting for name recognition and also uh, acknowledging the work of their peers that, uh, whose works had been anonymized um, by the system of production in which they were working. And that's part of this whole story.
1: And- yeah, thank you. Oh, sure. So um, let's get into the chapters of the book. Let's really kind of get into the case studies. Now, the artwork that was engaged um, in the book, and that also illustrates the book, was produced at a particular moment of what you refer to as the collision of forces in the visual arts. Um, On the one hand, the American graphic tradition of commercial art is meeting European modernism and a vibrant and abstracted, as you put it here, new subject at the same time. So there's this really interesting coming together of very different um, but, you know, not unrelated forces of imaging, of um, invention, of technology that's producing the works that we're going to be talking about. And what the chapters do is they take us um, step by step through a kind of chronological progression of the story but also a progression of visual tropes and objects um, and technologies that also um, uh, provide the backbone for this story. So the first chapter looks at the atom, the planet, and the tube. This is super fascinating. And it starts with the beginnings of FM radio technology. So FM is invented in 1935 um, by Edward Armstrong, and this technology was licensed from him by General Electric. So at the very beginning, we're in this context of um, understanding the competition between different electronics companies. Like he had been doing some contract work, I think, for RCA. And then General Electric um, kind of uh, owns the technology that he produces. They see the um, the potential in it. So the beginning of mass production of um, the tubes, right, for FM radio was celebrated with the, a promotional booklet called Electronics, A New Science for a New World. Okay, so here we're talking about now FM radio and the tube. Now, this booklet was really fascinating for our purposes, in part because it's um, it was illustrated with something called the Earth Bulb. Right, okay, so um, so let's get right into these images. um uh, Megan, can you talk about what you find um, potentially most interesting about the earth bulb and how it kind of uh, might help us understand the way graphic artists are humanizing technology in this period?
0: Oh, sure, and there's so much to say about this image. Uh, it's hard almost to know where to begin. Um, let me start by going back to nineteen oh nine uh it Uh, 29 years earlier when uh, AT&T had articulated the goal of uh, universal service uh, through telephone communications, and that was the sort of initial invocation or alignment between uh, what telecommunication could do for human society and framing it in geospatial or geophysical terms. And uh, that idea of aligning the uh, possible futures that electronics might bring uh, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, visual and uh, theoretical models of the solar system uh, has a pretty long antecedent. And then in 1938, you have Herbert Beyer, who was a Bauhaus modernist and who was uh, known for doing earthworks and for infusing, uh, in Europe, Bauhaus modernism uh, with a sense of uh, organic uh, form and organic um, kind of ways of looking at line and form. And then here he is in North America in 1938 working for General Electric. And, uh, you know, FM radio uh, greatly expanded the reach of uh, of radio broadcast networks. And it was also a terrific challenge to the hegemony of AM radio systems. Um, so the idea that FM was going to be a new world was very, you know, it was a contentious uh, techno-political battle at the time. And then uh, Bayer expresses all of these, the kind of encoded notion that electronics is going to uh, pull human society into metaphors into kind of modes of being that demand um, uh, solar system visual metaphors uh, to explain and then that FM radio is going to be one specific instance of uh, this kind of impact on society and then he uh, paints this uh, big picture uh, It's a General Electric 880 uh, bulb that um, facilitates FM radio stations with the planet Earth inside the bulb. And that image just pulls all these threads together that, um, and it's also a little tongue in cheek too, because it's kind of a, it's slightly campy, this image, Mm -hmm. Um, um, but it's got the, uh, you know, the disembodied hands of humanity, uh, pushing the tube up into the stratosphere, uh, with the planet Earth inside the tube. And that just, uh, it references all the way back to the idea of the notion of, uh, universal service from 1909 in, in the telephone sphere and, uh, even um, the models applied by physicists in the first decade of the twentieth century to think about the electron in in terms of a tiny solar system, and and brings all those uh, kind of uh, visual, cultural, and theoretical antecedents together uh, in this image to promote the possible futures of FM radio.
1: That's right. And already, um, just in your description of this single image, so many of the themes of this chapter and so many of the um, themes that really, I think, are exemplars of the way that technology and visual representation come together um, are all there. So you mentioned um, the idea of visualizing or modeling the atom in terms of a tiny little Solar system, and the chapter talks about um, the imaging of the Rutherford Bohr model of the atom and its relationship right. to, right, like the Cold War anxieties and Cold War politics. Um, also, the idea of the Earth inside the tube. Um, the chapter also talks a lot about imaging of the vacuum tube as a kind of visual trope and the importance of containment um, that comes out just in in the imaging, right, of this cube. So this is just um, one example, right, of, of the ways that paying careful attention to reading visual language um, and imagery can really help us understand, um, you know, in a new way what's happening in terms of the history of technology in the period. And this just continues to be the case. So as we move to the next chapter, we're still um, looking at tubes, but these um, tubes are cathode ray tubes. So you call um, cathode ray tubes in this chapter the first electronic screens and the first electronic eyes. And this idea of watching and visuality and being watched and surveillance is very, very important to what's happening here. So the chapter looks at the um, integration of and the use of cathode ray tubes in terms of the technologies of radar screens, of televisions. Um, and you talk in particular. Um, about a couple of things that I'd love to ask you to talk a little bit about. One is super selfish of me to ask, and the other (laughs) is less selfish. So the super selfish thing that I'm going to ask is uh, for you to talk a little bit about oscilloscopes, and theremin, like kind of musical instruments and theremins in this period. Mm. The chapter talks about that. And this is selfish because I play a theremin and I have one sitting at home. And I was so, anytime I see anybody writing about theremins, I'm like, yes, we have to to talk about that. So can you talk about um, what's happening in terms of oscilloscopes and um, electronic music in this period as it relates to your story?
0: (laughs) Oh, sure. Well, that's just great because... um, You know as a a big fan of electronic music, you know to I me, mean? listening to electronic music really helps me think things through, and I thought, you know, how can I bring in something about the history of electronic music to this book about visual representations? Uh, you know I had to work on it um, but uh, with the oscilloscope, it just uh, you know it fit right in because. Uh, the sound that it makes is so iconic. The, uh, you know, we can picture, uh, the wavy line on an early 20th century round screen that's monitoring an electronic waveform, and we can hear in our mind's ear, uh, the way that waveform's going to sound. Great,
1: I'll do and it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Woo! Okay, for <laughs> those who don't know what theremin is, so ooh, Okay, I just did it. Okay, go on.
0: Okay, yeah, right. So I, uh, you know, I thought I can talk about uh, the history of music here. And, and it um, the history of music also, uh, you know, it feeds in in a lot of different ways because electronic music in the 1930s had a window of time when it was uh, attempted to integrate into kind of mainstream orchestral environments. Um through the work of people like Leopold Stokowski, and, and it was widely written about in early electronic magazines, kind of before uh, electronic technologies were commercialized the way that they later became. Um, music seemed to be kind of an equal application of of technology, and it, for a while, it got equal page space in the uh, in the in the radio and uh, electronics magazines, and it, mostly by way of explaining, um, you know, it was considered to be one kind of a major one major way that uh, electronics was going to be in, integrated into the culture, and uh, uh, orchestral music sort of. Uh, decided uh, you know, against that, and uh, over the decades, electronic music was kind of migrated into its own uh, sphere. But for a while in the 30s, um, people were explaining oscilloscopes and the monitoring and creative and artistic use of electronic waveforms really widely in musical terms. And, and that's what I wanted to get at was that... Um, it was a little later that uh, oscilloscopes began to be used uh, to prefigure uh, like video art uh, where the waveform was manipulated to form visual patterns um, for, you know, in the, in visual media. Um, like before that, it was, Uh, electronic waveforms and the oscilloscope were used as musical instruments. And and I just thought that was, uh, you know, beautiful and could not go unremarked in this uh, history of technology.
1: That's right, and there are actually a number of moments, um, maybe we'll get to some of them in, in the rest of our hour, but there are a number of moments in which the history of music, and musical technologies, actually becomes a really important part of this history of the confluence of art and visual representations mm-hmm. and technology. So player pianos um, come up later and then some other um, issues. So listeners who may not have known that that's also an important part of the story who are interested in the history of music um, and the intersection between music and technology will find a lot of interest in the book. So the other thing that's um, somewhat less selfish, but, but also I think really important to the chapter that's happening here in the discussion of cathode ray tubes um, is you're emphasizing the importance of a kind of panopticon effect, right? And um, These tubes are for watching. Um, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the story in terms of what you think is really important um, about the work being done in this chapter? Sure. I- you know, one thing I've, that motivates me
0: to study the history of technology is to understand how gestures that we take for granted today uh, came into being, and look at the moment right before they were taken for granted. And one of those gestures is our our uh, gaze at the screen. And uh, where, what was the historical moment right before people were socialized to look at screens? And And that's where the emergence of the oscilloscope comes in. Um, First, people started watching waveforms and then, uh, you know, cathode ray tubes became adapted to uh, eventually to, well, television. Um, But outside of the kind of popular sphere, uh, they came to become... tools of surveillance. And, uh, part of this idea that we're, uh, part of the work that people do in contemporary society is to sit down and look at a screen and watch what's happening on the screen, um, goes back to the early, uh, use of, um, CRTs to display, uh, things like, uh, radar patterns and, um, you know, uh, flight monitoring. And then that in the, Uh, During the Cold War era, of course, those applications um, uh, took on a proliferation of forms and uh, dramatically increased in scale. And there's this relationship between the history of our surveillance culture of of the contemporary era um, with that uh, process of uh, socialization to the monitor itself and um and i found that all very compelling and 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 the history of the crt was a way to trace that
1: so as we move from here into the next chapter we move from tubes to crystals and this is a really fascinating chapter um, so this is a chapter that looks at the use and research into the use of crystals and quartz crystals specifically, but not only um, in terms of electricity. I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but piezo Piezoelectricity? Piezo electricity. <laughs> uh, right, piezo electric. Piezo electricity. Um, special superpower well, of mispronunciation.
0: I mispronounced it for <laughs> for years. Um, When when you're only reading the literature and not necessarily talking about it to other historians who've gone before you, I thought, you know, I read it as like uh, pianissimo, pietzo. 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 So, but it's it's actually piezo. Piezo. Okay, so piezo (laughs)
1: electricity and quartz crystals. Um, Now this chapter is really a model of what can happen when you look at uh, ways and modes of imaging these technologies and pull a story and a narrative out of those modes of imaging. And the narrative that comes out of, or at least part of the narrative that comes out of reading images of crystals and crystallography in this period is a narrative that um, speaks to the increasing or a kind of special interest in, uh, bringing together organic and mechanical imagery. It becomes a narrative about, uh, the transformations in visualization that come with micro photography and the ability to see, um, on a new scale. And it's also a story that brings to the fore some actors who we might not otherwise um, think about uh, too much in the history of science and technology. And this is, again, speaking to the issue of um, trying not to take for granted still. You know, the things that we take for granted are the people that we take for granted. And this is the importance of staff artists, right? So uh, these com- Some of these companies, like General Electric, um, for example, actually employed artists on their staff. Um, And you bring us into the work of one of them in particular, Ken Staley. Mm -hmm. So um, as a way into this chapter, can you maybe talk a little bit about um, the importance of artists working at these companies in this period? Um, How for you did they, and do they help shape um, and change the story in important ways? And and perhaps especially with regard to crystals and crystal imaging. Yeah. The, uh, Ken Staley's story.
0: I had the good fortune um, to be able to speak at length with his uh, surviving spouse about his work with General Electric. So I had a, a bit of a—I had a live informant to talk to me about that time, and she had also been working at General Electric. And uh, and what's really interesting about Staley's work, uh, both the work itself, is also that he, as an artist, managed to uh, kind of get it seen in the fine arts sphere. And it's uh, cited in popular media. It ended up getting mentioned in like, both Time and the New Yorker as an uh, you know, interesting instance of modern art. And uh, it was one of these early uh, kind of entered, um, you know, he communicated ac- across a number of different worlds that weren't always talking to each other at the time. There were such uh, thick walls between fine and applied art at the time, even though many uh, fine artists worked as applied artists for their day jobs to support their fine arts work, and uh, the work that Staley did for General Electric managed to uh, uh, push through that wall and uh, be seen by multiple audiences,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and to be taken on its own terms as an expression of, of uh, modern painting, mm-hmm. and uh, that really... Uh, you know, there's a history there of, of uh, microphotography and crystallography in the history of the kind of fine arts understanding of technology. The work that um, Gregory Kepes did at MIT to uh, convene about talks and courses in the relationship between art and technology uh, were had their foundations in a study, photographic studies, of uh, microphotography of crystalline structures. And so Staley's work uh, picks up, uh, it continues that uh, tradition, as well as speaking to the kind of larger issues that uh, artists and scientists were both trying to uh, suss out during the 20th century, uh, trying on in their different domains different kinds of uh, organic and mechanical ways of framing the work that was being done. And uh, this is interesting in the history of technology that scientists and engineers uh, both tried out different kinds of uh, frames around their work um, and in different mechanical or organic terms. And, And that's the exact same question that modern artists were grappling with in the 20th century. You know, whether the emerging world was, you know, inherently mechanical and had to be represented in angular geometric mechanical terms or uh, whether uh, mechanization was a skin on top of an underlying um, deeply organic nature of things that uh, that needed to be expressed in kind of uh, rounded um, biophilic visual terms. And Mm -hmm.
1: Mm hmm. Oh, I, I was just going to say um, this kind of this issue of the confluence of the mechanical and the organic also comes up in the next chapter. Right. OK. Um, oh, OK, it's a kind of but it, did you want to um, speak to that issue a little bit more before we moved on? Oh, no, we can move on to. <laughs> Well, this circuits and transistors. Yeah, well, Uh this is something that comes up in the discussion. um, I think of uh, the kind of challenges and strategies for representing the transistor um, in graphic terms. So you call in chapter four the transistor the single most technologically and culturally significant outcome of early experimentation with crystal structures. And so there's a a nice transition from the crystallography and the study of crystals to this study and development. Of transistors, and you talk in this chapter about again some of the ways that graphic artists are imaging transistors and, and some of the particular challenges that they're facing um, given the the particular structure of um, and the shape of this technology. Um, can you talk a little bit about that oh yeah well that's really where um, you know the research
0: into crystallography uh, yielded these uh, new properties of crystal. Forms that they could channel and control the flow of electrons in ways that duplicated and extended the power of vacuum tubes, and ultimately, in most contexts, replaced the vacuum tube. Um, but that you know that history, like so many others, took some time to become as self-evident as it appears to us from today's point of view. And uh, while it was unfolding, uh, engineers and scientists worked with artists to try to figure out ways of communicating just what a uh, transistor was and, and what it could do. And a few artists did try representing it, but, you know, it, it was this, um, in keeping with its roots in, um, you know, microelectronics. the, the artifact itself was so small that it, even in its early kind of chunky clunky, Era, it defied uh, direct visual representation. So while a few artists did try to paint the transistor, uh, this what it, the turn to the transistor away from the tube really offered artists an opportunity, and in fact demanded that they draw on their skills of abstract visualization, um, that to depict the change that the transistor represented. Uh, but in this case, the Uh, You know, electronics engineers had developed a graphic language for communicating um, circuit plans. And that graphic language uh, utilized uh, geometric forms in much the same way that um, modern artists of the mid-20th century were using um, geometric forms. So there was this uh, kind of accidental and not so accidental convergence of uh, geometric modernism with uh, the circuit symbol language, which goes back to Faraday. The circuit symbol language itself was 150 years old, um, but it became uh, much more widely uh, promulgated and and read and understood by different communities of um, you know everyone from radio repair people to engineers, and so it. It had a much wider audience in the mid-20th century. And then uh, the artists who were studying the work of engineers and trying to figure out ways of communicating it in visual terms just applied strategies of of, uh, mid-century geometric modernism to the circuit symbol diagram language and and came up with this whole new trope of uh, visual expression of, of technological change.
1: Mm -hmm. and um Yeah, so this intersection between abstract art um, and the technological arts is also something that we see um, surfacing in the next chapter. Um, What you bring us in the next chapter into the issue of circuit boards, Um, so we move from transistors and circuit symbols to circuit boards themselves. Now, this becomes a really, really interesting um, point of the story for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that at this point of the book, Um, you explicitly raise an issue and a theme that's going to continue to be important up to the very last pages. And that is the similarity or the relationship or the resonance between electronic tinkering and art making. Um, So you you talk about the ways that, for example, a circuit board um, or the shape of a circuit board evokes the shape of a painter's palette. Um, You talk about the similarities between kind of a Home electronics workshop and a home craft bench. Um, so, since this seems to be a really important theme um, in general um, throughout the work, can you speak a little bit to that? The sort of the um, the, the similarities in this part of the story between um, electronic tinkering and making and artistic tinkering and making.
0: Oh, sure. And um, you know, this is something that interests me all the way through the story, but it's really with um, you know, there is quite a surprise factor for me in doing the research and coming to understand the extent to which uh, circuit boards were hand-made and represented a kind of a um, home craft tradition that, you know, with the, the the extent to which was, uh, you know, revelatory to me as a historian I didn't know about. And, um, and then to... Like I, going back to the history of electronic music, in the course of this research, I, I came um, through the research done by Carolyn Martel into the history of the On Martineau, uh, an electronic music instrument. I came to understand that people who build those instruments are still uh, today making circuit boards by hand in home workshops. And, uh, you know, so. It, partly because of those discoveries, I felt that this chapter was the right place to foreground this um, kind of other aspect of the relationship between art and technology where they're, um, you know, in, in a number of ways, they're uh, emerging in parallel process to one another and have a number of, of kind of operational features in common with one another. And, you know, I found in a, in a broader sense, this uh, book is about a number of different kind of underrepresented points of connectivity between art and technology, and, and this is the right place to bring in that particular part of the story. Um, and the process of automation, it anticipates the, set, the discussion that follows of automation is that in the, in the especially with circuit boards um automation unfolded a little less regularly than i might have expected and the uh the kind of the craft bench tradition is very persistent and uh, it has a number of it's just basic tools in common with um you know with craft benches
1: mm-hmm. So let's um, let's actually keep going along these lines. okay and, and kind of move into the next chapter. but also there's another important shift um, to mark at this point of the book um, as we move from circuit boards um, to the emergence of computing. And you mark this um, at this point in, uh, I think, at the end of the chapter, we have a shift at this point of the story from radios to computers. So that's one shift. That is true. And there's another important shift from ground-based technologies to space-based technologies. Um, And so we're going to see that coming up, um, literally coming up, right, um, in terms of the kinds of images that we'll see in the second part of the book, or rather in the second half in these later chapters. So chapter six takes us into the emergence of computing. Um, There's so much happening in this chapter that we could talk about um, and that will really just kind of scratch um, the surface, right, of this part of the story. Um, But one really interesting thing that's happening in terms of this transition to computing is there's a visual transition in terms of the imaging that you're looking at and the imaging practices to uh, a way of imaging um, digitality. Um, right? And this comes up in a number of different kinds of visual tropes. Um, Those include the abacus, um, right, the image of the abacus as a way of rendering the digital, um, and also the imaging of punched cards as ways of imaging the digital. Um, so as a way to kind of open up this chapter for us, can you speak to what you think um, is most interesting and important about the way that the digital um, and digitality is imaged in the work that's foregrounded in this chapter?
0: Uh, sure. Well, as the circuit board chapter uh concludes that um the technology became um you know more about processes that were invisible to the eye than processes that were visible and artists had to adapt to that and the circuit board ends up uh as a kind of template for abstract modern design, and that kind of carries into the uh, chapter on uh, automation and the emergence of computing, Um, and it is a a real turning point in the middle of the book, uh, or just past the midpoint, where uh, the leading um, expressive uh, technology uh, goes from being radios to being computing, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, electronics, the term electronics was kind of code for uh, radio, radio communications. Uh, you know, that was the leading edge of it. And that changed in the early 1950s with the emergence of mainframe computing industries. And, uh, I mean, it changed slowly over the course of the 1950s. Um, and then what you see as artists grappling with the new output of these new machines uh machines that were combined from um, uh, you know all different kinds of technological antecedents in information processing and in uh, scientific calculation and how to uh explain the um, you know the emergence of information as a product uh, but at the same time the um as you say the uh, uh uh computing technology was uh becoming uh digitized or digitalized in in the sense of being made into a digital system from an analog system and radio had, was an analog technology but uh scientific calculation uh with its antecedents in wartime um you know calculating machines uh was a uh binary Digital technology, and so artists uh, reached for abacuses and also uh, various visual motifs associated with the, the dot patterns on paper tape and the shape and the dot patterns in punched cards uh, to communicate the idea of the process of a system going from being analog to being digital. Mm-hmm. Um. And you know what's beautiful about the abacus is it also captures this idea that history was at a turning point when uh, systems of when electronic uh, communications technologies went from uh, I mean they continued to be analog but uh, computers emerged and became uh, digital and and that we needed a different way of understanding. you know, different from waveforms, uh, just how the technology was working, and the advocates expresses that idea of uh, uh, you know it being a historical turning point, point. Um, and then the, those dot patterns in the paper tape and the uh, that were they uh, and the um, the punched cards again, like the circuit diagrams, they uh, take quite easily uh, to. To the abstract turn in um, in graphic modernism, mm-hmm.
1: and this sort of turn toward um, the incorporation, uh, or this abstract turn, right? And the turn toward the incorporation of abstract symbols is something that we see um, in really, really interesting ways coming up in the next chapter as well. Um, So this is a chapter, chapter seven, that looks, uh, among other things, at typographic artwork. It looks at the work um, with numbers and alphabetical symbols and mathematical symbols in the graphic arts. It brings us into the use of number strings, um, uh, evoking countdowns, right? We talked about space travel Mm -hmm. a little bit or the kind of move to space. Um, It talks about here a kind of poetics of navigation so in a really beautiful way poetry a concrete poetry and the confluence of not just visual arts um and uh technology but also audible arts and the poetic arts come in um, and become part of the same story in chapter seven i love chapter seven Um, and we can talk about chapter seven right for the rest of the time but um, what i want to do is just kind of uh, mark another thing that's going on in chapter seven that's really important for the story and this is um The way that you bring us into a particular site of production, that's really important. And that is Lincoln Labs at MIT. Now, the chapter talks about the importance of Lincoln Labs at MIT um, as a site for computing innovation, but also as a site for graphic innovation. And that graphic innovation is happening at the hands of Jacqueline Casey, a particular artist who also comes up earlier in the book, but really is given center stage here in Chapter Seven. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about that for you? What's most important for us to understand about Lincoln Labs and the work of Jacqueline Casey um, in this part of the story? Uh, sure. I well, I was
0: um, just so moved to find language coming into center stage as uh, you know, as a writer and and someone who's study linguistics and and poetry, and to find a different kind of visual poetry and and uh, expressions of concrete poetry put in service of communication of technology. It, you know, it really moved me, and it's my favorite chapter too. I like, shouldn't have favorites, uh, but um, you know, the, the first more a little more broadly, the artist. Who used visible language um you know typographic forms uh, were drawing on uh, work pioneered by Italian futurists in the early twentieth century, but then uh, doing something totally new with uh, typographic uh, design, which was actually causing it to convey very specific messages about changes in technology and um and there's uh, you know you can and and they encoded, to some extent, the history of the computing industry and the way uh, different forms of number and word strings were combined in the art. And that was uh, really revelatory to me. And, of course, the, the work done at MIT is uh, unparalleled in its um, uh, breadth and depth of research. And MIT also had a house uh, graphic design community that was... Um, uh, led by uh, Muriel Cooper in the Design Services Office, uh, which was at the time the Office of Publications. And, uh, and Jacqueline Casey worked uh, with Cooper, and uh, she'd been um, taught by a Swiss modernist. And uh, what, you know, her work for uh, the MIT Office of Publications is fairly well known, but um, what I'm studying here is work that she did for the Lincoln Laboratories, which is in a separate site and has its own uh, separate uh, publications, and um, um, the work that she's doing for the laboratory here was recruitment posters, and I've not found these particular posters uh, represented or or interpreted elsewhere, Uh, so I took some time to really focus on them. And especially uh, in this case in Figure 715, Casey actually brings together in uh, totally innovative terms uh, the same kinds of animating ideas that were uh, motivating Herbert Beyer back in Chapter 1 to make that, Uh, crazy earth bulb, the vacuum tube with the planet at the center. In uh, Casey's uh, design that's actually an eight column collage of scientific and technical papers, she pulled in all the same kinds of elements. There are technical papers on the um, uh, motion of the spheres and of the you know, electron um, microscopy. Um, so she's playing with the tension between um, the electron and the solar system in the, in, you know, in their scale and uh, also mixing in different elements, uh, graphic elements that express the emergence of uh, computing and the need for people to come work on the IBM 709, um, you know, and, uh, and also she picks uh, technical papers that include uh, diagrams that have very rounded soft shapes as right alongside uh straight line uh you know number and logarithmic diagrams and you know so that the tension there between organic and mechanical visual forms i mean she kind of just pulls it all together um all these motifs um And in a way, she uh, makes less essential the role of the artist by suggesting that um, the technology doesn't need art to be made about it, that if it's arranged correctly, the evidence of the work of scientists is its own art. And, you know, so in a way, uh, her work here in this chapter is a narrative, one narrative climax, uh, of the book, um, because after this image, which is from 1963, uh, photography becomes ascendant and the role of the designer, the graphic designer anyway, begins to recede a little bit. So.
1: So, it's really important. and a couple of things at least um, that have come up in your in your description of Jekyll and Casey's work. um I just want to mark because they're they're important I think throughout the book um one of them is um and this is just interesting to me the um use of collage um as a yeah. Um, as a methodology, um, which uh, is something that we see actually in a number of places, it's really interesting, and also the importance of women to this story. The book is very careful um, to highlight, the, especially in this chapter, the importance of women to computing, and um, the importance of women to this story, even um, even when we don't always have... Uh, the named sources to be able to locate and appreciate all of the ways that women are shaping this story um, where there are opportunities to do so. The book is very careful to do so. So I appreciated that. I think that's an important part of the work um, that the book is doing.
0: Oh, thanks. Yeah, Jacqueline Casey is actually the only uh, woman artist that I've been able to uh, learn about who was doing this kind of work for industry. Um. Mm -hmm.
1: But the the book marks that explicitly as an issue, right? I mean, rather than just, kind yeah. of just you know, telling her story and then moving on, even um, for drawing our attention to the importance of, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, artistic anonymity um, and, the, you know, the imaging of women in some of these advertisements, um, you know, it, it, the book makes it an issue uh, rather than just kind of touching on it and moving on in a way that I think is really important.
0: Uh, yeah okay
1: so as we move on um into the last mm-hmm. couple of chapters of the book we move more and more into space So chapter eight looks at the artwork, among other things, that was associated with promoting and recruiting for space programs. And you talk about a number of things related to this, right? Um, The narratives of heroism and of exploration um, that are rendered visually in the graphic um, objects associated with this promotion and recruitment. Um, But you all, you talk about science fiction themed graphic art to kind of um, put in a plug for something we talked about right at the beginning of our conversation. But you also talk about the human body um, in a couple of different ways, Um, both the increasingly anthropocentric, um, as you put it, environment of space electronics and also depictions of a new kind of electronic body that went along with um, this uh, this technology. So can you speak to that issue here for you? what's most important for us to understand about the body or bodies um, and the way that they were rendered artistically and technologically um, in this part of the story? Um, sure. Well, the
0: uh, when electronic technologies actually entered space in the late 1950s, that, con- uh, you know, concluded or didn't really conclude, but it uh, it marked a completion point of the uh, promise that electronic technologies belonged in, a, you know, a solar system sort of narrative frame that was articulated as early as 1909, as as we heard, and uh, you know, there's a connection there with kind of making the solar system into. A body, a part of the world, our universe, our environment, that we as human beings can reach and touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, the actual uh, space programs, uh, robotic, uh, human exploration, civil, military, they each of them expressed in a different way uh, that, uh, you know, we as humans are extending our reach and actually expanding our sense of kind of what the body of our world is, our reachable, touchable world. Um, Part of the book traces that geospatial narrative all the way through. And then that does uh, segue right into our sense of, you know, so what's the elemental kind of uh, physiological understanding of, of the future of electronic technologies and Uh, in uh, focusing the future of electronic technologies in the afterlife of the astronaut, as the next chapter investigates, um, it it picks back up with the idea from the 19th century and early 20th century of uh, that electricity and electromagnetic forces are... um, you know, part of our own human body, and that um, space exploration is part of exploring our expanded reach. um but at the end of the day, the future of electronics, as is proving out today, is going to play out in the in the forum of the the human body itself, and there will be um You know, so the outer directed future in space exploration uh, is mirrored by an inner directed uh, future uh, within the human body. And that's where the book sort of heads towards a conclusion.
1: That's right. And as we head toward, um, that conclusion and we get into chapter nine, we see that playing out in imaging of electronic brains, in imaging of robots, um, and in a thematization of bionics. Right. So for listeners right. who may not who may not understand what bionics means or specifically how you're using it in this part of the book, can you talk to us about the importance of this notion of bionics um as it animates what you're doing here in this conclusion? Um sure. You know, bionics is
0: today a, a little bit of an archaic term, but it uh describes accurately the uh um the gesture on the part of uh, scientists and engineers in the 1950s to translate um, notions of cybernetics into a a kind of a real-world future for the human body. And uh, we haven't mentioned cybernetics, but it was the uh, philosophy, World War II-era philosophy of the future of uh, electronic networks and how they would and could affect uh, human society in the future, and the idea that uh, the human life could be uh, improved by integration with electronic networks um, gave rise to this, what was it, in about 1958, a neologism of this word bionics, and then in the 19 early 1970s, uh, you have at the end of this uh Space journalist Martin Caden wrote this novel called Cyborg um, that is about narrativizing the end of the astronaut program and theorizing the future of space technology in the form format of the human body. And that novel became the TV show, The Six Million Dollar Man, but he was referred to as a bionic man. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the decades since then, uh, the term bionic has become... Um, you know, limited to a very restricted sense, and uh, terms like artificial intelligence, and yeah. uh, you know, are, are you know much more ascendant and relevant to uh, how, since uh, the '60s, our cultural understanding of um, well, of intelligence uh, theory has is playing out, um, but that old. Uh, archaic term of bionic does express that kind of historical moment of uh, utopian uh, promise that um, you know that bionics is the, the twin to uh, space exploration and it's going to carry forward um, in the phase in between human space flight programs and as a kind of ground working ground based uh, understanding of what electronics are going to be. Mm-hmm.
1: So as we come to the very end of the book, the book um, kind of concludes by moving us forward. And I'll just mark this um, as so that listeners know this is there and they can um, look to the book um, for more about this. Um, the book closes with some thoughts about the future and a movement toward transhumanism. Um, and it talks about the importance of, again, something that we've already um, talked a little bit about, which is the realm of crafts and tinkering um, to the future and transhumanism and their relationships. Um, So as we, uh, did you want to speak to that at all as we um, kind of come to our conclusion? Or would you like to leave that for listeners to explore? Oh, uh, well, what I really wanted to end the
0: book with was a suggestion to readers that the mechanical model um, of electronics that ended up prevailing in the late 20th century I mean, it's self-evident, uh, you know, to many people now, the ways in which that did not serve our our planet. It doesn't serve uh, environmental justice. It doesn't serve labor justice. And that, um, you know, a future for, technolo- for electronic technology, if it's going to um, kind of break through into the 21st century in a way that lets the planet carry forward, uh, is... Something of a return to a planetary model of thought, uh, and I, you know, I use that, you know, with air quotes around it to refer back to the planetary model of the electron, but to make a uh, you know a very uh, straight suggestion that um, you know the urgent future of electronic technologies, um, right alongside of how they're going to uh, serve our human health and well-being is uh, how they're going to. Uh, you know, become deproliferated in, in ways, um, you know, deproliferate the harm that they're doing uh, to the environment, basically. And that's how I wanted to end the book with that suggestion to readers to bring it, uh, you know, uh close the metaphor of the planetary model and then um, suggest that the future of electronics, you know, it it can't be... Uh, It never has been and never will be just a utopian narrative of a better life that it has to be um, uh, looked at critically, as I think many of the artists do all the way along. Um, But this idea of uh, through the book looking at technology from all kinds of uh, different and uh, forgotten vantage points, the one most important way to uh, let that inform how we, uh, continue to view technology is is through that um constructively critical uh, frame of uh, kind of smart deproliferation of um, environmentally unsustainable production.
1: so Megan, now that we're at the end of the book, um of course, there's a million billion things right, that we didn't have a <laughs> chance to talk about. Is there anything specific that we didn't talk about but that um you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Oh, uh, just that this uh, book is a real uh, joy for me to work on and that, um, you know, I hope that that's expressed in the the journey and um, that the enthusiasm for, that I still think that, I think that, for instance, um, thinking about uh, technology, society, and culture in geospatial terms is highly generative and there are, that there are lots of different ways to put that frame to work to um, explore things in new light and uh, mm-hmm. um, just that just how,
1: just how enthusiastic I am <laughs> I think that comes out um, definitely in the course of reading the book um, and reading the images as well as reading the text so now that the book is out um, what's what's currently occupying you? What are you working on right now? Um well lots of things
0: as I uh, mentioned at the beginning I'm, I'm working on our library uh collection development and project uh you know development in all kinds of ways and then uh one thing that I discovered in the course of researching this book is uh the role of uh moving image sponsored moving images in um conveying changes in technology and uh, I'm doing a research project now to uh explore and understand um sponsored uh cinema uh basically uh corporate movies that were made to explain technology and looking at ways that uh animation and and straight documentary representation were put in service of explaining new technologies um and just uh trying to map that out <laughs>
1: Well, best of luck with that. That also sounds like a super fascinating project. And thanks so much for taking time away from that work to talk with me today, Megan. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Carla. It's a real pleasure, too, and an honor to be on your program.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.